Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God, reading it in context, comparing Scripture with Scripture, the context of the entire Scriptures, the immediate context to make sure we know what we believe. Now, the first question that we have today was one that we discussed last week. And afterwards, I thought, let's just spend a little bit more time clarifying Christians being judged. Do Christians get judged by God? Does the Bible teach that Christians are going to be judged? When we are saved, don't we pass from judgment to to no condemnation? And if we are judged, what does that mean? What is God trying to accomplish in our lives by letting us know that we will give an account for our actions? Now, first of all, we are going to be judged. The Bible clearly says this in 1 Corinthians 5.10, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to whatever he has done, whether good or bad. Notice that we are being judged for what we do, whether good or bad. There are three kinds of people in the world. There are non-Christians, and we'll put them all in one category. Then there are Christians. There are those that are in a right standing with God. They're serving Him with sincerity, without hypocrisy. When their conscience strikes them, they seek to do what's right. When the Holy Spirit convicts them, they do what's right. They keep short accounts with God. And then there are Christians who are not in a right standing with him. They're still believers, but they're not doing what God wants them to do. They're not living by their conscience. Maybe they think that they can live however they want to live. Even though the Bible says in in Romans 6 that we should not continue in sin, that we, we think grace may abound. May it never be that we would continue in sin, that grace may abound. Now let's read this passage in context. This is, and let me go ahead and pull it up on the screen for you so you've got it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 9, all right? And let me go ahead and put it up here. It says, and we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So Paul says to them, we make it our aim. So it should be our aim as well, to live well-pleasing to God. It says, for we, tr- we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See, it's connected to living a life that is well-pleasing to him. We must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to whatever he does, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust known in your conscience. In other words, God knows everything that we do. He knows our hearts. He knows our desires. He knows the things that we are doing and not we, that we that we want to do. What we don't know it's our motives of our hearts, and so we want to live a life that is well pleasing to Him. All right. So we also know that we are judged by the way we judge. The Bible says that if you judge, you will be judged. And the mercy you give is the mercy that you're going to receive. So we not only want to live our lives in right standing with God, having things short accounts, having things right with Him, but we want to be merciful people. We want to be kind and tenderhearted to other Christians, and we do not want to judge. Now, the next thing that the Bible tells us about judgment is that we are not condemned. 
And this is where I think the problem comes in. We learn that we're going to be judged by God, that we're going to stand before God and be judged. Good or bad works. And this has to do with our conduct, not our standing. Our, our, our standing, not whether or not we are genuinely saved. So Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that being that you and I that have a genuine relationship with Him, that we are under no condemnation. Now, you may be a Christian who is not in right standing with God, and you are still not under condemnation, but that doesn't mean God will not discipline you. In fact, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12 that if you are not disciplined, you are illegitimate and not sons. So God disciplines everyone whom he loves, and you may be under discipline right now. And in fact, in Corinthians, the Bible says those who took communion wrongly, some of them were sick and some had even fallen asleep. So these are believers who were being disciplined by being sick. Now, the third thing that we learn about being judged is that our works will be tested by fire. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Each one's work will become, and let me go ahead and put that up on the screen for you as well. This is 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, starting in verse 13. And we're going to read all the way through 15. It says here, each one's works will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. And we talked some about rewards last week as well and we will receive rewards. We can't clearly understand what they are uh, Daniel 12 says, those who bring many to the Lord will shine like the stars forever and ever. But there, and there's also re other rewards like here that we see. It says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So he's kind of still smoking. He's putting out the flames. But he'll be able to be saved. I would rather receive a reward. And, and I wonder how many Christians will have everything burned up. What a horrible thing that would be. Now, this does tell us that we do have heavenly rewards. And Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves break in to steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Wherever your heart, treasure is, there your heart is. So God knows that if we are stacking up treasure here on earth, our heart's going to be here on the earth. But if it's in heaven, it's going to be in heaven. So all of these things about giving an account to God, about being judged before God, have to do with the way that we're living now. In fact, the Bible also tells us that we not only are going to be judged, but we are going to have to give an account. It says uh, in Romans 14, 11 through 13, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fail in our brother's way. So then each one of us will give an account to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another. So the way we judge is how we're going to be judged. And remember, this is written to Christians. So it's really important. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, 
in verse 17. This is Hebrews 13, 17. In fact, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you as well. Hebrews 13, 17, talking to, talking to the, the body of Christ says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would, not be, that would be unprofitable for you. God's desire is that we would be able to rule over those spiritually who we rule over with joy. But we also have to give an account for the souls that we are watching over. In Matthew 13, 36 through 35, it says, But I say to you that for every idle word man may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is, that if we have a right relationship with God and, and we're keeping things right with Him and we've asked Him to forgive us of our sins, those things will be forgiven. And, and I don't think we're given an account for them. But for the person that's living in not in a right relationship with God, and remember, sometimes people present themselves as living in a right relationship with God, but they're not. Those were the Pharisees. And there are Pharisaical Christians today who present themselves as spiritual, but in reality, they're not. Now, one, one more thing. The Bible tells us that God will render to each according to his deeds. Let me go ahead and put this one up on the screen for you as well. This is Romans 2, 6 through 9. Let me go ahead and just do this. Um, so, um, it says, Who will render to each according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patience continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That is that as Christians... We're living our lives to do good. We're doing good because we love him. Though if we say we love him, then we're going to keep his commandments. If we say that we love him and we don't keep his commandments, then it says in First John that we're lying. So we are going to do good works because we love him. They're not what saves us, but because we have committed our lives to him. But to those that are self-seeking and do not, do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. So it's important for us to realize why God would judge our words. Now, just a couple of things in closing. Number one, God cares about how we as Christians act. And this is what this is all about. The judgment, the giving an account. It's not about our eternity as genuine Christians. But if I mistreat people, if I don't love my neighbor, if I am, am being judgmental, if I am not giving mercy, then God's going to respond out of that. In other words, and our works will be tested by fire. They don't just stand on their own. Now let us live our lives well-pleasing to God. Let us be right with Him, in right standing with Him. And if we are in right standing with Him, then we won't, don't have to be too worried about giving an account. But I might stand before God on that day of judgment, in right standing, keeping short accounts, having things right. But God may say to me, Robert, it seems to me you took a little bit too much pleasure in gossiping about people. And maybe I had been convicted about it, but I continued to do it anyway, thinking that it wasn't as bad as something else. And I might have to give an account and say, I'm sorry before the Lord in that day. So make sure that you have a right standing with God, keep short accounts, and we can have confidence on that day. And what we really want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant.
All right. So I hope that that's helpful. Uh, good to see you guys here today. Uh, if you're here for the very first time, good to have you. We take questions about the Bible, about Bible living. Um, and if you have a question, then put the word question or a question mark in front of it. And then write out your question, reread it, make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit it and we will take a look at it. Um, so um, welcome to all you guys. I see Psychman is here. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman has a question. Would the conviction of, would the, would the uh, conversation in Revelation 6, 9 through 11 make more sense if it took place before the rapture or after or soon after? Isn't the pre-trib rapture idea the only one with major consequences if wrong? Um, all right, let's just take these one at a time, Psych Man. I appreciate that, and I'll just I'm gonna I'm just gonna reiterate. This is a secondary issue. What we believe about the tribulation period, mid, pre, uh, after, pre wrath, what we believe, everything else we believe, premillennial. Uh, we, we take the Bible more literally. We believe them all the same. It comes down to the point of when the rapture is going to happen. And a lot of people end up taking this really personal and make it a major issue. And I would say, let's not. This is a secondary issue. And um, we have people in our church who are mid-trib and post-trib uh, who are doing who are doing work alongside of us. We do not make it an issue when it comes to anything to do um, with Christ. It's not a major issue. This is, a, this is a minor issue when it comes to a lot of things. So Revelation chapter 6. So here we have the, the, the beginning of the tribulation period. And we have in verse 9 through 11. Let's go ahead and um, let's see. Let's go to 9. All right. So this is the cry of the martyrs. So this is the fifth seal. And it's the cry of the martyrs. And you're asking if it makes more sense if it takes place before the rapture. So let's just go ahead and bring it up on the screen for you. Let's take a look at this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls those who had been slain for the word of God, for their testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, um, as they were, was completed. All right, so I'm trying to see anything in here, Psych Man, that would make me think that this would have to be before the tribulation. So we know the people have been martyred all the way from Stephen, right, the first martyr, all the way until now. So let's just try to read this and see if there's anything that, that this would be before the tribulation period. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under it souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony. So that's all throughout church history. A, a, group, a good number of them, by the way, which they had held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge the blood on those who dwell on the earth? So that has nothing to do with the rapture, not connected to whether the rapture has happened or not. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a while longer until both the number of their fellow servants. So if this is taking place in Revelation and the rapture has already happened, then the tribulation saints, those who were left behind, who would become Christians, then would die and they would have to come in, would be killed as they were, completed, um, was completed. 
so I'm I'm just gonna have to say, Psych Man, that I don't I don't see that here. Um, the conversation I don't think has anything to do with trying to identify or in any way, shape, or form could be used to try to be any kind of evidence for the rapture having happened or not. Now, the second part of your question here is, let me see if I can find it here. There we go. Um, isn't the pre-trib idea the only one with major consequences if it's wrong? Um, and, and, and I've heard this before, certainly. And uh, I'm going to go ahead. I still got your question up here, Psych Man. So I've heard this before. Um, that if you're teaching people post-trib and they go through the tribulation, then you got them prepared. Then they're ready. How are you, okay, and if you're teaching mid-trib and you only go through the first part of the tribulation period, which is not the wrath of God, even though the Lamb opens up the seals, and even though in the Old Testament it says the day of the Lord, and it doesn't describe what that day of the Lord is. Here you have the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. It's a time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 37. All right, let me just show you this. Uh, it's not a time of, of the trouble for the Gentiles or for the bride. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. God's dealing with Jacob during those days. So let me just pull this up here. Let me get to Jeremiah. Uh, yeah, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It says, Alas, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. God's once again doing a work with Israel and bringing them out of it. Now, let's get back to your question. So, let's just say someone's teaching mid-trib. That they go through the mildest part of the tribulation period, and then they're taken out. If they're wrong about that. Okay? What are, what are the consequences for them being wrong about that. Well, I guess they're going to go through the worst part of the tribulation period. And what are the so-called consequences here? Are real Christians then going to go, I'm not following Christ anymore? Are they going to be disillusioned because all of a sudden they're in the midst of the tribulation period? All of a sudden the wrath of God's coming on them? What about pre-wrath? What if they're wrong about pre-wrath? then what are the consequences of that? Well, that means that they're going to go through the wrath. And that could be considered really bad too, right? Because you may have, you told them they weren't going to experience the wrath of God. And so they lived their lives in such a way they didn't think they were going to go through the wrath of God. Then all of a sudden they're in the wrath of God and they're, they're feeling the wrath of God upon them and they go through the worst part of the tribulation period. What if you teach pre-tribulation, like I believe, that you're not going to go through it at all? And I'm wrong. Well, they're going to go through the tribulation period. They got the same consequences as the mid-trib, same consequences as the pre-wrath. What if, what if the post-trib is wrong and the tribulation period happens pre-wrath or mid or before? Then, well, I guess they were prepared to go all the way through it. Let me ask you a question, um, Psych Man. How, how are you going to prepare for the wrath of God? How are you going to prepare for the, for the earth being destroyed, for flesh becoming rare? And why would the church ever go through that? Why would the bride of Christ ever go through that? If, if, it, were, if, the wrath, if it wasn't the wrath of God, if it were um, just natural disasters, 
But why would the Lord allow his, his church, his bride, to receive the wrath? So, no, I don't, I, I don't agree, psych man, that the most, one of the most consequences for being wrong, I think if you want to say the, the one that would have no consequences would be the guy teaching post-tribulation and he was right or, or he was wrong and it came beforehand. Then people, the people following him are like, whoo, man, then, um, then, then nothing has happened here, all right? So thank you, Psych Man, for your question. I appreciate that. Certainly welcome uh, to give a follow-through, uh, a follow-up on that, all right? So um, Jari has a question. Uh, part one about abortion from the atheist, but aren't you worried if the baby becomes a serial killer or several physical or mental, mentally deformed. Okay, so you're going to stop the life of a baby because you're worried the baby's going to become a serial killer. That's from an atheist. Um, how would you know? How, 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 would, how would you know before that the baby was going to become a serial killer? I, I, I don't know. And physically, mentally deformed? What, what do we do? What do we do now with babies that are born mentally or physically deformed? Do we feel like we should stop their lives? There's, now, there are people who believe that. Euthanasia. If the baby has, I'm, I'm going to shut this down, but still see it there, Jari. If the, if the baby has problems, then there are people who want to get away, do away with it. But now we've got a baby that's in the womb. The question isn't, is it going to become a serial killer? Is it going to be mentally deformed? The question is, is it human life? And if it's human life, then it has value. That's the question. And in the Old Testament, if you kill someone, you're killing someone in the image of God. And so then you received, your life was taken from you because you killed someone in the image of God. And so a baby in the womb is in the image of God. And there have been so many babies that have been taken. Um, in the land of Israel, they have found places where the children of Israel worshiped their children to Baal by, by sacrificing their, passing their children through fire. And they're the burial grounds of children that are around them. In Roman brothels, they have found outside the burial grounds of babies that were either left to die or were aborted during those days. And this is, this is human nature. And it's one of the reasons that God is going to bring judgment against the earth. All right. So, um, let's see. All right. So, um, again, um, want to welcome you guys. Good to see you here. Good to see you, Vance. Tyler, thanks for being here. I appreciate that. We have a question from Kara. Kara says, the statue of, um, Nebuchadnezzar, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, 32 through 33. Any correlation to Jesus being described in Revelation 1, 1 through 5? His feet like the feet of brass. His two descriptions uh, relate to one another. If yes, how? Um, yeah, I don't think there's any connection between Revelation chapter 5 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in this dream, he sees a statue. 
The statue has five sections. The head of gold, the chest of silver, the stomach of brass, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And in his dream, a rock not formed with hands comes out, taps the toes of feet of iron and clay, and the whole thing collapses. And a wind blows it away, and the rock grows until it covers the entire world. Now, what you're seeing here is from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, chosen by God to be a, a world leader. God said to Nebuchadnezzar, I've made you, a, there's, there's no one that's not under your rule. The whole entire world's under your rule. And so he was the head of gold. And after him came the Medo-Persian Empire. And they were inferior to him. And Daniel, I even think, says in his interpretation of the dream, that's inferior. Then he says to the, that a stomach of iron is the, Medo, um, is the um, Greek Empire, which is Alexander the Great, the ram, the strong ram in Daniel's vision. And then the legs of iron is the Roman Empire. Now, there are those who are beginning to teach that that is the Islamic Caliphate, Rome had east and west. Constantinople was the, was the capital of the east side of Rome, and it lasted longer by, by about, I don't know how many years, a lot of years, hundreds of years, than the, than the west did by Rome. Um, I don't, right now, I don't assign to the, the caliphate idea, the Islamic caliphate idea, that the Antichrist is going to be Islamic. Um, I Again, reserve my a right to get more information, uh, but I don't see it in Scripture. But the two legs are legs of iron and represent Rome. And then the iron and the clay mix would be the Roman Empire mixed with clay, which would make it weaker. And so the Antichrist is a world leader, but he rules over the entire world. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 1, and let's see if we can see any connections, Kara, between this 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 description of Jesus and the statue uh, in the book of Daniel. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show um, how his servant, things which must shortly take place, after he sent and signified by his angel to his servant John. Notice the word signified there. Now we're going to see a lot of signs and they signify, they point to certain things. It says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads those words and who hears the prophecies and keeps the things which are written um, for the time is near. All right, so now we get to verse 4. Um, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, peace to you from him who was, who is, and who is to come, um, and from Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me get down to the statue here. Um, so he hears God's voice, behold, let's see, behold, he is coming in the clouds, well, I will see him, all right, um, okay, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, all right, here we go, so it starts at verse, verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and uh, the patience of Christ, was on the island of called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia, uh, um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice. Here we finally are, of the one who spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, so that's not the head. And his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. So each of these things are describing Jesus and different parts of Christ. 
It's describing, um, it's describing his royalty. It's describing uh, his, uh, his eyes that can see everything. Um, it's describing his wisdom and righteousness. Um, his feet like fine brass. He brings judgment everywhere that he goes. His voice like the sound of many waters. God's word is extremely powerful. Um, and so, Kara, yeah, this does not have anything to do, no connection at all with Daniel chapter 2. Um, Jesus is going to be the final world ruler, and that's the only connection that we have between them. But what we're seeing with the sword coming out of his mouth is a vision of Jesus being revealed in the book of Revelation. As we make our way through the book of Revelation, you continue to see him revealed throughout the book as he is in chapter 1. All right, Kara, I appreciate that. And I think, hey, by the way, those, those are great things for us to do that we would start to look and go, um, there's, and, and there's, you know, there's this statue here and there's a vision of Jesus. Are these things connected at all? Now, quickly, we see that there's really no connection, but it's not a bad thing for us to do that and to begin to look and see whether or not there is connection between those kind of things. So, Renee says, good to see you, Renee. Um, I started listening to a radio station that came across J. Vernon McGee. What are your thoughts about his teaching? Thank you and God bless. Um, I grew up under J. Vernon McGee. I'm talking spiritually now as a spiritual baby. Um, J. Vernon McGee and Chuck Smith were two of the only people that taught all the way through the Bible. J. Vernon McGee is great. Um, he's got a really, he got a country accent. May I say to you, my friends, the only temple that Solomon had was on the side of his head. And so that's kind of how I talked. He had to draw, but he was really smart. He's a PhD and really, really a brilliant man. Um, went through the word of God line by line, verse by verse, which I really appreciate. One of the rare people to do it, him and, him and Chuck Smith. Now, I ended up liking Chuck's teaching better. And so I settled into listening to Chuck all the way through the Bible instead of J. Vernon McGee. I think there are also some things theologically that I would disagree with um, J. Vernon McGee about, but he ministered during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s over the radio, and um, good, good stuff. Um, I really like him, and um, yeah, uh, he's with the Lord now, um, experiencing his reward uh, in, in the presence of God, and how awesome that is. All right, so thank you uh, very much for your question. Kimberly Fox has a question. Kimberly says, um, Jesus talks more about the body than being clean and saved than the spirit. Jesus talks more about the body being clean and saved than the spirit. Is this because we are already spiritually saved, yet our bodies still have to go through the death and resurrection? Um... All right, thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate your question. Jesus talks more about the body being clean and saved than the spirit. So, I'm just trying to think through the teachings of Jesus and whether, and, and maybe that's the case. Let's just assume, let's just assume that's the case. I'm, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not that's the case. Jesus talks a lot about living in eternity with him. Um, when he talks about the body and he talks about being clean, so I would think that being clean would be spiritually, right? Not being clean physically. 
Like he never said, make sure you take a bath, make sure you're clean, right? So when he's talking about being clean, he's talking about it spiritually. So that would be the spirit. And I, yeah, I, 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 I just would question the premise, Kimberly. I'm sorry. And maybe I'm just reading your question wrong. And maybe if it was read another way, or maybe it's just me and I'm reading it wrong. But I read the question and I question the premise. I think Jesus talked more about the spirit than he did um, he, did he did the body. Now, if you mean in the body, as in when you pray, pray like this. Um, or um, treat people this way. Don't judge people. So, if you're talking about things that he gave us to do while we're in the body, which may be very well what you mean, then I would say he did that because he's giving us direction here. Uh, he's not giving us direction when we're up in heaven. When we're up in heaven, we'll be in his presence. Uh, this mortal will put on immortality. This corruptor will put on incorruption and will be standing in the presence of God. And so, yeah, I, um, I think that he would give direction for us why we're in the body. And if there, I might need clarification, Kimberly, okay? So if you have clarification, then, then just go ahead and ask a follow-up and I'll look to follow it up. And sorry, Kimberly, if it's me, all right? Um, and we have another question from uh, Empress Kimberly. Uh, she says, question, a pastor said that if you haven't heard the gospel, reject it, that if you have, that, okay, let me start again. A pastor said that if you've heard the gospel and reject it, you can't come to Christ. Because after the rapture, come to Christ. After the rapture, because God sends a strong delusion. I know where he gets this, but it can't be right. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, I... I don't know, Kimberly, of anywhere where the Bible would say that someone that has heard and rejected the gospel can't be saved. Um, I don't know. You would have to have heard it the first time. Yes, God's going to send a strong delusion. And there's going to be lying signs and wonders. And many people are going to believe. And many people who rejected the gospel before coming to Christ are going to believe that strong delusion. But I'm with you. I... I don't see anything that would say it. Unlike you, you say that you know where he gets it from. I don't know where he gets this. So I'm trying, I'm trying to think why anyone would say that when you've heard the gospel and rejected it, that you can't receive it after, um, after the, the rapture of the church and, uh, and during the tribulation period. Um, I can't think of any. Sometimes I think what pastors do is we end up making statements and we end up giving our opinion as if our opinion matters and is, is really important. Um, I, I noticed this, I noticed this a while ago, that somebody will say something and then they'll go, um, I was trying to think of, of some of the more bizarre things that I've heard people say. Um, this can't possibly be this, it means this, and just, you know, they, they make a point out of something that doesn't have any application or qualifications just because it's their opinion. And I think being really opinionated when you preach is a bad thing. It's not that you can't ever give your opinion. It's not that it isn't right to ever go, this is the way that I think about this. It's that when you get really opinionated as a pastor, there's a problem. This seems opinionated to me. And of course, I don't know who you're talking about, so I don't know if they're opinionated or not. But it certainly seems like there is no justification for this. And I don't want to speak for God. I don't want to speak for the Word of God. And when the Word of God doesn't say something, I don't want to start acting as though it is something when it isn't. So we want to be careful. All right. So we have a follow-up by Rod. 
Rod, good to see you. Follow up. Aren't Old Testament saints in white robes and the church era saints white garments? Ooh. Or is there a difference? Um, huh. Yeah, I don't know. I've never noticed that. So white robes as opposed to uh, white garments. Um, oh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass on this one now, Rod. I'm going to look it up. What would be the difference between white robes and white garments? Um, you have any ideas, <laughs> Rod? Rod? Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I have never seen that before. So let me tell. I'll, I'll take a look and see. And if you have any ideas, let me know. Or if you have a passage, the the um, the reference where that's at, where it talks about white garments and Old Testament white robes, and maybe we can look it up. Maybe it's as simple as. The Hebrew word and the Greek word, the the way the Hebrew word is translated, the way the Greek word is translated to garments and robes. Um, maybe garments means and and is every time that the white that, that talks about Christians having white garments is that used every time? Is it every time in the Old Testament white robes? Is it could it never be translated garment? Is a word that can't be translated garment? All right. So um, segment has a follow up. Segment says follow up. Sorry, I was meaning the context of only pre-trib and pre-wrath counted as credible. No way God is subject his kids to wrath. All right. So thanks, um, Segment. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I mean, as I said, so if I'm teaching pre-trib because Jesus could come back at any moment. And we don't know when he's coming back. He's coming back at a time we don't expect. He says in Luke 17 that it's like it is in the days of Noah. Noah was taken out and then the wrath came and they're marrying, giving in marriage at, right up until the destruction came. And it's the same thing with, um, with uh, Lot. They had to take Lot out before the destruction could come. And even though pre-wrath might teach the same thing, I see the all the tribulation period as being the day of the Lord. And so I teach it. Um, the Antichrist is going to have full power over the saints. We're promised that we're kept from the hour of testing to come upon the whole earth. And all that we're going to have is a different definition of when that the day of the Lord is, right? That, when that day that comes to test those who dwell on the earth. I see it as the entire tribulation period. They don't. What if I'm wrong? And it's, it's mid-trib. Are there people who are going to leave the Lord? Are there people who are going to kill themselves? Are there people who are going to not know what to do because they were taught that Jesus was going to come back with them before it, but now they're there during the mildest times of the tribulation period? I think from the pre-trib, from the pre-wrath position, it's the weakest of all the arguments. So if you're mid-trib or you're, or I mean, I shouldn't say weakest because mid-trib is before the pre-wrath, right? But post-trib. So post-trib makes these arguments. Um, but before the really bad stuff happens, you believe that the church is going to be taken out in the pre-wrath. So I would say it is, um, I would say that you're, you're, you're making a decision that from chapter six with the cosmic disturbances until the end is the day of the Lord. Now, I don't know that, that there's anything that makes that distinction that calls that the day of the Lord. I think that the day of the Lord comes for the 70th week of Daniel and the entire thing. Um, 
can I make a distinction that it's the whole thing? I, I don't know. I, I think I might be able to, but that's something that we have to do. Um, in, in the end, no, I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's a huge problem with teaching that the tribulation period starts with the tearing of the first seal and that Jesus doesn't come back until the, the wrath starts because if the wrath hasn't started, then people are just going through whatever. So no, I don't, I don't see a problem with it. Psych man, sorry. Um, I don't want to teach a lie. That's the main thing, right? I don't want to teach a lie. I want to teach what the truth is. And I believe it can't be during the tribulation period because if, if it was during the tribulation period and you saw the Antichrist, then you would be looking for a time when, when this pre-wrath is going to happen. You would know generally when it was going to happen. And I don't know where you put it personally. Most pre-wrath put it sometime after the middle of the tribulation period, after the abomination of desolation. So you would be looking for the abomination of desolation and you'd be looking for the return of Christ. The Bible says, when you see these things start to happen, look up for your redemption draws nigh. We're looking for the return of Jesus. We aren't looking for the return of the Antichrist. The pre-wrath position puts us looking for the Antichrist. So there's just a handful of the problems that I see with it. As I said before, psych man, we're, we're so close on everything else that we believe. This is a secondary issue, way secondary. And um, um, what we believe about, you know, is this going to happen? When, when does the wrath start? That's the, that's the only difference that we have. When does the wrath of God start? I see it happening at the tearing of the first seal and the white horse coming out. And so do the vast majority of teachers, by the way. The vast majority of those who believe in premillennial believe in the pre-tribulation or rapture of the church. Um, there are very few who believe in mid, uh, post, or pre-wrath. It's just most see it the way that I see it and teach it. And I, I'm not saying that that gives it any validity. I'm just saying that's the way it is. And if there's something that could speak of the wrath not being the first five seals, then I would love to hear that and consider it. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Jari says part two, and God chooses not to heal them. I'm forgetting part one, Jari. And the baby, okay. All right. So choose, God chooses not to heal them. And the baby has to live that way forever. Would um, taking a life in the womb then be okay? Better to have not been born than to live a life full of suffering. My response to an atheist would be, there have been a lot of lives that people have, have been full of suffering, and yet they've lived and are happy that they've lived. You don't get to play God and decide who suffers too much and who doesn't suffer enough. That's God who gets to make that decision. And I would say that's a very poor reason for taking the life of someone who's in a womb because you don't know how much suffering they are going to have. You don't know. Now, you, you might say that they um, know that a child's going to have a certain kind of condition. Um, and, you know, the only, the only reason I see for taking the life of an unborn baby is when the mother's life, she, she's going to die. And then you're just stopping that death from happening by the inevitable of what else is going to happen. 
I, I don't see any other reason for it. I think that's a very poor argument by the atheists. Um, if technology starts to allow that, when wh where do we draw the line? And when, if it's okay to stop a life in the womb because there's going to be suffering, then what about when the baby's born? You got a baby that's a year old and is going to suffer. What do you do now? Is it okay to take that baby's life? Right now it's not. Why? Now, again, infanticide, there are plenty of people who do believe that. Um, so, um, yeah, we have Brooklyn, uh, the skeptic. I'm going to put this on the screen. I hope you don't mind, Brooklyn. Um, I'm against abortion, not because of the Bible. I see babies born and unborn being killed by God's chosen people at the request of God in the Bible. Uh, what's with that? All right. Um, so, good question. All right. So, I like Brooklyn that you said I'm against I'm against abortion, but not because of what the Bible says. So I think that's fantastic. Most people who are upset that the Bible has God killing men, women, and children at, the Sod at Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, or in the flood, are pro-life, are pro-choice. So I like that there's a consistency with what you say there. Um, as far as God being able to take a life God created life and God can take it. God is the creator of life and God has chosen to stop something that was happening that was, that was awful and God was ready to judge those nations. And if he judged those adults, then those babies would be left behind. And so I see God just taking all of them um, you could also talk about the Canaanites. Um, although there is some belief that we could be talking idiom, um, um, yeah, idioms here, that to destroy men, women, and children, then not all men, women, and children were destroyed. Uh, and there is some evidence for that. But let's just go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God decides to destroy that city. And there's men, women, and children who are, are killed there. Um, God stopped a wicked culture and took the lives of babies because he was judging that wicked culture and that God can do that. And as a believer, I don't have any problem with that because God gives, gives life and God takes life. God has a right to do that. To God, it's not murder for him to take a life. If God judges someone and decides that their lives are going to be taken, then God takes their life. And I don't have a problem with that. But I do want to say, Brooklyn, that I really appreciate that you are consistent in your argument. I think that's great. So thank you for being here. Thank you for asking your question. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I brought that in. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks again, Brooklyn. No, um, I'll, I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll take questions here, especially if they're, if they're really sincere. I, I want to take questions. All right. So um, we have a question from Deirdre. Deirdre says, um, I was raised with a female Pentecostal pastor. All right. I never heard anything negative about it. Does Paul, uh, does Apostle Paul's teachings permit female teachers and leaders, but not pastors? What are your thoughts? So there is a lot of controversy over this. And there are good, solid scholars 
who are egalitarian. And there are good, solid scholars who are complementarian. So complementarian would believe um, that a women's roles and men's roles are different. And that a role of a woman is complementing the role of a man as a leader in the church, in the home, um, really those two. Egalitarian can believe that women and men are the same and have the same roles and can interchange um, these roles. The Bible, what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches complementarianism. And it's, it, the, and, and again, this doesn't make someone who's in a position of leadership more power, not someone who's under someone's authority, not equal to them. You can have a general and a lieutenant. The lieutenant could be an awful person, the general, or a lieutenant could be a great person, the general could be an awful person, but the lieutenant is going to be subject to the general because he's a general, not because he's a better person, not because he's not equal in, as a person to them, but because the position that they hold is different. Now, whether or not women have ever, and I'm, I'm talking about the senior pastor, teaching pastor position at a church. I don't see any reason why women can't be called pastor. Now, that's me. There's a, a lot of guys who do. I think we could have a, a youth pastor who's a woman. You, you could have the word, it's just word shepherd. The Bible uses the word elder and bishops to talk about leaders and giving the definition of them. And um, so Paul's teaching has the leadership and the teachers being men. And I think that this has been, there's a, there is a toxic kind of complementarianism that causes people to not allow women to thrive in their role. A good leader is going to understand that certain people have stronger gifts than what they do. It's like a husband who is the leader of the home, not allowing his wife to use her gifts because I'm the, I'm the head of the family. Well, you're the, a bad head of the family. If you understand that your wife has stronger gifts in the area of finances, then let her take care of the finances. Then that's real wisdom. And um, I, um, I did go to uh, a church for a little while that had a woman pastor. We left, not just because of that, but because some things were also being practiced that weren't proper. Um, but yes, um, the Bible does teach that the role of a, of, a, of a teaching pastor is to be a man. And there are a lot of different passages on it. And Deidre, if you want more information on it, and I've suggested it here before, um, Mike Winger is not quite done with it yet, his Women in Ministry series. Um, but he's got a very in-depth um, Women's in Ministry series that... Um, uh, covers all of the different passages. I think he's got a couple more to do. Um, I, I know he's got a couple more to do. So I, I'm just going to see if I can uh, take a moment to find uh, that here. Let me just go ahead and do a search. Um, there we go. So I'm just going to put this up on the screen for you here, show you a couple of his videos, and I think that they will be very helpful. So um, let me go here. I'm going to go here. So here we have 
um, women in ministry, everything the Bible says about the debate uh, on it. Um, and this is, let's see how long it says. Um, that's There's 11 episodes in this. All right. Um, uh, so, yeah, he's got women's women's silent. Um, all right, so he's just got a lot. He's got a lot of information on it. If you look up his women in ministry series, let's see if it pulls up here. Um, yeah, um, women leaders in the New Testament. Um, uh, were women apostles in the New Testament? Things I don't didn't know as a complementarian. Um, the egalitarian, the egalitarian silver bullet. He's complementarian. And he covers these, but I think he covers them in a really fair way. And I've listened to all of them, even the six-hour one on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I think that that's going to be helpful. So we are definitely complementarian as Calvary Chapel. And um, we believe that God has given different roles, but that doesn't make people, uh, women and women, not equal. All right? Um, So that looks like the same question to me. Um... Yeah, uh, yeah, same thing. I see that Brooklyn's question came up for me twice. As I said, Brooklyn, I appreciate the consistency that you've got in what you believe. Um, you know, I mean, con- continuing on just along those lines, I'm going to come back here and take Kimberly's in a moment. What time is time we got here? Just a little bit. Um, again, God is the creator of mankind. And God can choose to do what God wants to do. And if God judges people and, and decides, like, but that doesn't mean God doesn't care about people. Like, when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah didn't want them to repent. And God says to Jonah, don't you know there are 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand? These are people that are not at the age to understand their right hand to the left hand, they're children. And so God cares about them. So to think that God doesn't care about them doesn't mean anything. But God also knows the wickedness that's taking place from a culture and that it may be better to stop that culture than continuing to allow it to go on. Um, and that's just God deciding those things, all right? So we have a question from Kimberly. So Kimberly, uh, maybe a clarification in the tribulation. If we have already passed away on this earth from old age, does the tribulation still include everyone or just people here? Uh, the tribulation is just the people that are here, Kimberly. So we're moving, we're moving along through time. We're serving God. We're in the church age. And according to God, he knows when these things are going to happen. Then the tribulation period will start. We, I, I believe that it starts sometime after the church is taken up out of the way, caught up in the air to meet the Lord. And um, so, yeah, it's only for people who are still here um, that, that go into the tribulation period. Um, those who have died are just going to stay in a holding place until, you know, it's, it's time until they are resurrected in what is called the second death, which we get to in the book of uh, Revelation. Um, so, um, Kimberly Fox says, is this the same question? His death has been defeated. The scripture says um, it has not, it has no sting. Does that mean when we are persecuted by fire on the state between that we will uh, not experience the pain of death. Um, sorry, Kimberly, I'm not. I'm just not following. I'm just not following the question. Um, question: His death has been def- 
defeated, the scripture says. So I'm just not following the question. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe you can rewrite it. Uh, again, maybe it's me and I'm just not seeing it clearly. Maybe you can rewrite it just so that it makes a little bit more sense to me. I would appreciate that. So we have a question from Crystal. Crystal says, um, kind of off topic, but how do we know divorce is the decision to make? Wow. Well, yeah, not only is it off topic, Crystal, but it's a huge topic. Uh, so God, when a man and a woman make a commitment and are married, God wants that marriage to be permanent. Now, people do things that break that. So Jesus said, if a woman divorces a man for any other reason but sexual morality and marries another, she commits divorce. I mean, she commits adultery. <laughs> she commits divorce. Yeah, she commits adultery. She commits adultery. Meaning that, that when it's because of sexual morality, then the marriage is already broken and she is free to remarry. So we would say that a divorce is permitted when someone has an affair. Uh, we would also say that a divorce is permitted if in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if a non-believer leaves the marriage, that the believer is free that they're, they're not called to, to bondage. So you can look that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If there has been no, um, if there's been no adultery, then there can be a separation, but you have to remain single or be remarried to that person. Um, so, but what I would love, Crystal, and we might not have time to do that today because we only have three minutes left, um, but for you to get more specific um, on Oh my, yeah, I don't know how specific you want to get on a, in a Q&A. Um, but it's just very broad how divorce is a decision to make. So I go, okay, well, you want to make, um, if there's been adultery, if you're being abused, um, you can separate. You might not be able to remarry. Um, if there's adultery, you're free to remarry. Um, if you, you're going to have to sit down and talk to a pastor to be able to talk about more detail. Obviously, I'm never going to be able to give you the direction you need as to whether or not you are to divorce from uh, this Q&A, nor is that what this Q&A is for. But sit down and talk to a pastor to find out exactly um, the details, go ahead and give them the details so that you can um, get direction that is biblical. All right? So um, we got just a couple minutes left here, Brooklyn, but let's go ahead and bring in your follow-up. So God can make judgments on the unborn baby when he has a mother who chooses to have an abortion. No. How is sovereignty right? By the way, I am pro-life agnostic atheist. Thank you. I, and, and like I said, I appreciate your position on being pro-life. I think that's consistent. Um, because, because the baby's a different person. And the baby is human. So if the baby is human then another person doesn't have a right to take the life of that person. God is God Almighty, the creator of the universe, and everyone answers to him. And it's appointed once for man to die. And so some people die at 35 and some people die at 70. And God hasn't, because God took their lives at that point, doesn't mean that God murdered them, God killed them. And so if God allowed a, if God caused a destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the example I like to use. If God allowed a destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah, knowing that he was judging them there, but knowing that babies were going to die, but deemed the judgment was necessary, then God can choose to do that. 
those babies' souls, we believe as Christians, are in the presence of God. Those children's souls are in the presence of God. It's the people who rejected the light that they were given in Sodom and Gomorrah and weren't living by them, right? living by those other things that find themselves resurrected in the future for judgment. So, I don't see, as a Christian, because I don't see any comparison to the sovereign God creator of the universe and a mother who would decide to kill her her unborn baby. You would not, by any means, say that a mother has a right to kill a born baby. Let's just go over any of the reasons that you might have. Let's just say you don't want un, uh, um, unwanted children in the world. Can you kill an unwanted children that's one? Let's say that you don't want anybody that's a result of incest, which is horrible and awful, right? But if you have a one-year-old who is a result of incest, are you saying they should be killed? That's inconsistency. If you are able to take the life in the womb of a human, you should be able to take the life of, for the same reasons of a baby who's one. You say, well, rape. Well, I met somebody who was a product of rape a year ago. Their grandmother raised them. And rape is horrible and awful. But are you going to take the life of a baby that's the result of rape because the baby was a result of rape? That's inconsistent. I, I love your consistency that you are pro-life. I think that's a good thing. But it's inconsistent to believe that a woman would have a right to take the life of a child for whatever reason she wants and then not allow someone to take the life of a baby that's born for whatever reason you want. I, I, I see it as a child. And I, I would love to find out why you're pro-life. Are you pro-life because you believe it's a human? Are you, I'm, I'm assuming you said you're pro-life, so you believe that it's a life. And I, I, like I said, I really appreciate that. Um, but God, there's a difference between God, who's the creator, and a mother. And I think that we can all see that. If God does exist, then he has the right to give life and take life. If God does exist. If God doesn't exist, then we're all just, all of the natural things are happening. But mothers do not have the right to take the lives of their children. If a mother does that after the child is born, the mother will go in jail. If someone kills a mother, a woman who is pregnant, in all 50 states, they're brought up on two charges of murder. And so then a state would allow a mother to be able to take the life of her own child? What would be the justification of stopping the life of that child in the womb? All right, so that's how I would respond to that, Brooklyn. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you asking uh, questions. Um, and I, I, like I said, I appreciate, your, I appreciate your honesty. All right, I'm out of time. I see that we got a question here from John. We have a follow-up from Kimberly. Um, we got a few more questions uh, that are here. Good to have you guys here. Hope that uh, the Lord blesses you. And um, Brooklyn, I hope you join us again and would love to hear more of your questions. All right. I really, really, really would. And um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Um, stay close to Jesus. Love him. Serve him. Uh, love you guys. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. We're going to be talking about the preamble to the bold judgments that are coming up. So I look forward to seeing you there. All right. But um, God bless you guys. Thanks for all your questions. I will, be, I will not be here on Saturday, but I will be here next Wednesday, Lord willing. All right. God bless you.